Sometimes I think qualified uh, immunity can be used. I don't say it's always used, but sometimes I think it can be used uh, in a way to help us get the overall uh, best possible package of rights to sue uh, and remedies uh, for rights violations. There's a number of ways uh, in which qualified immunity not only fails to advance, to my mind, these interests in protecting government, but also harms interests in government accountability. To ask whether qualified immunity is unlawful is actually to ask, in part, what, what is law and what is the judge's role? Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing qualified immunity, a doctrine that prevents executive officials, like police or cabinet members, from being hauled into court for alleged constitutional violations. A case cannot be brought against them if the alleged violation's unconstitutionality was not clearly established at the time of the incident. But where does this doctrine come from? Is it wise? Could it be overturned? We spoke to three scholars, Harvard's Richard Fallon, the editor of Hart and Wexler's The Federal Courts and the Federal System, William Bode, professor at the University of Chicago Law School and author of Is Qualified Immunity Unlawful? in the California Law Review. And we spoke to Joanna Schwartz, a professor at UCLA Law, whose empirical studies of qualified immunity have been published in the Yale Law Journal and the Notre Dame Law Review. We asked Professor Fallon to tell us what qualified immunity is and where it comes from. Qualified immunity issues arise when people sue for damages, uh, not for injunctions, but when people sue for damages um, for constitutional violations that they have suffered. Uh, and when somebody sues for damages for constitutional uh, violations, somebody can do it on either uh, of two bases. Uh, if somebody wants to sue a state official, there is a statute, uh, 42 U.S.C. section 1983, that creates a right to sue for damages or injunctive relief against state officials who violate the Constitution. Uh, if somebody's rights have been violated or somebody believes that his or her rights have been violated by a federal official, uh, there is no comparable statute. Uh, but the Supreme Court has created a now quite circumscribed, uh, judicially authorized cause of action to sue for damages relief uh, under a case called Bivens against six unknown uh, named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. That was a case decided in 1971. These suits are invariably referred to as Bivens actions. So somebody sues claiming his or her constitutional rights were violated, seeks damages from an official under a tradition that traces far back into the common law uh, period, some officials sued for damages relief have always been able to claim uh, what is called official immunity. Official immunity is most firmly entrenched, least questioned, uh, in suits against judges for making erroneous judicial rulings that violate people's rights, uh, and against legislators for enacting unconstitutional statutes. When people sue judges or legislators for violating their constitutional rights, uh, it is long settled that both judges and legislators have what is called absolute immunity, which
means that they can't be made to pay damages for any actions that they took within a judicial or a legislative capacity. Coming along later in the historical sequence is a doctrine called qualified immunity, which applies in suits not against judges or legislators, uh, but typically against executive officials who violate people's constitutional rights. Uh, And under that judge-made doctrine, officials are held uh, not to be liable, not to be answerable in damages uh, unless they violated clearly established constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. Professor Bode had this to say. So just to take a recent example from the Supreme Court, And many of these cases, I think, end up being uh, claims where the police are being sued for violating the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures. For various reasons, that's a common site of this kind of constitutional violation. But in a recent case called uh, Mullinex versus Luna, individual who was fleeing from the police in a sort of high-speed chase, and the police are trying to figure out what to do about this, and they followed a kind of standard department procedure where you figure out where the car is going to go, and you lay out, I guess they're called spike strips, the idea that will pop the tires and sort of stop the person. But one person on the police force who uh, decided to sort of go off on his own and came up with this plan that he would go get on an, a bridge above you know, an overpass where the car was going to be driving under and try to shoot the car while it passed underneath him, like an action movie called his supervisor to tell him he was going to do this. And his supervisor said, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Uh, But he went and did it anyway. And uh, unfortunately, he uh, killed the driver. And then the car hit the spike strips and stopped. So it was sort of quite clear, you know, at least ex post, that this was unnecessary. And the the driver's estate sued and said this was an unreasonable use of deadly force. But the Supreme Court said it doesn't matter whether this was actually unconstitutional, whether we would conclude under our precedence that this sort of crossed the line under our various tests, because it's sufficiently within the realm of debate that we will instead give the officer qualified immunity and say that regardless of whether his actions were constitutional or unconstitutional in the first instance, it's not possible to sue him for damages. So it acts as a kind of a buffer zone around uh, a constitutional tort. We talked to Professor Schwartz about the effect qualified immunity has on the legal system. Surprisingly, only about 4% of the cases she looked at were dismissed on qualified immunity grounds, but it still had a big impact on the incentives faced by potential plaintiffs. I think qualified immunity doctrine plays a significant role in the litigation of these cases. And I think that it raises the cost and the time and the complexity of litigating civil rights cases in a variety of important ways. Uh, It's It's a very complicated doctrine. And then in individual cases, it was raised in about 30% of the cases that I looked at. And in those cases where it's raised, um, counsel has to do some pretty complicated research and briefing of the qualified immunity issue. Courts have to spend the time to, to decide those issues. Defendants are entitled to interlocutory appeals of denials, which meaning an immediate appeal if qualified immunity is denied. And lawyers that I've talked to said that that can add more than a year into the litigation of a case. There also can be stays while qualified immunity motions are being decided. So they raise the the complexity of the litigation, the cost of litigating these cases, the time spent litigating these cases, and create a number of different challenges. 
At the same time, it's not clear that qualified immunity contributes meaningfully to the officer's ability to exercise their discretion in difficult circumstances. Nearly all officers are indemnified. So if you're interested in shielding government officials from burdens of litigation, qualified immunity motions and grants aren't doing much work in that area. I've also done a bunch of research showing that police officers are extremely rarely financially liable in these cases. Almost 100% of the time, well over 99% of the time, governments satisfy settlements and judgments that are entered against individual officers. So qualified immunity is unnecessary to shield government officials from those financial burdens associated with litigation. There's a variety of different ways in which it happens. It's often indemnification, formal indemnification of the, of the officer. Um, but there are other times in which the government um, satisfies these claims without formal indemnification. In, in my research, I found even in jurisdictions where there were formal policies against indemnifying, individual officers never paid. So where does this qualified immunity doctrine come from? So the Constitution says almost nothing about remedies for constitutional violations. It doesn't say anything uh, whatsoever about suing government officials, whether it would be the president, whether it be a judge, whether it would be legislators, whether it would be federal marshals, whether it would be state governors, state attorney generals, state uh, police officers. So there's nothing about this in the Constitution. When the Constitution was drafted and ratified, I think it was just taken for granted uh, that the Constitution would operate against the background of uh, a legal system that included uh, a number of common law remedies for unlawful behavior. Uh, and in a way, the sort of disarmingly simple strategy of the Constitution was to have government officials be subject to the same law as everybody else. One of the early cases involved a suit against a naval uh, officer who, on the direction of the President of the United States, had seized uh, another ship brought the ship into port, and the ship owner whose ship had been seized by the naval officer on the directive of the president said, what happened to me was a common law tort. Uh, I was just out there sailing my ship, and this person came along and seized me. And when this person, this naval captain, came along and seized uh, my ship, he committed exactly the same common law wrong. Uh, that any private citizen who had come along and seized the ship would have committed. So the suit's going to be litigated as one at common law. When the suit is litigated at common law, the naval captain uh, interposes the defense. Um, I'm immune from being sued. I can't be sued successfully uh, at common law because I was acting pursuant to the lawful directive of the president of the United States. And the lawful directive of the president of the United States trumps the common law. The Supreme Court, in an opinion by Chief Justice Marshall, says, well, that would have been true if the president's order was lawful, but it wasn't. And because the president's order was not lawful, the ship captain can be liable for damages 
under the common law, just the way any ordinary tort seizure could be liable under the common law. Then gradually over time, the common law, which was the instrument for ensuring legality in the action of federal and state governmental officials, began to develop a number of common law immunities. Long established, really quite uncontroversial works, absolute immunities for judges. Judges are never never liable for actions taken in their judicial capacity. Common law immunities for legislators. Legislators are never uh, liable for actions taken in their official capacities. And this common law background was in place in 1871 when Section 1983 was enacted. In the aftermath of 1871, there continued to be common law suits against federal uh, officials. And in those common law suits against federal officials, the court slowly began recognizing that executive officers, as well as judges and legislators, enjoyed some sort of common law immunity from suits for damages. Then, here's where things really start to get complicated. Everything that I've told you so far involves suits at common law. Gradually, first under Section 1983 and then under Bivens, the Supreme Court began to hear suits for damages against state and federal officials directly alleging constitutional violations rather than common law violations. And in the 1950s, as early as the 1950s, the Supreme Court began to say that judges sued under Section 1983 and legislators sued under Section 1983 enjoyed absolute immunity from suit even when they were sued for constitutional violations. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court began to say that state officials who were sued for damages for constitutional violations under Section 1983 uh, enjoyed qualified immunity. And then the Supreme Court expanded the immunity from state officials to federal officials. So it's in the 50s, 70s, and 80s that we start to see immunity introduced in suits alleging constitutional violations. But what the Supreme Court, I think, thought it was doing was just carrying forward the tradition that had developed in suits at common law that were argued the way the suit was argued in the case involving the captain who seized the naval vessel pursuant to orders of President Thomas Jefferson. Professor Bode had this to say. In terms of yeah, key steps, I see two big cases, one called Pearson versus Ray, a case decided by Chief Justice Earl Warren, where the court first recognized a kind of good faith defense to a constitutional claim under Section 1983, and a law segregating bus terminals was enforced against some people who were there. And a few years later, the Supreme Court said that law had been unconstitutional. And so then uh, those people tried to sue and say their constitutional rights have been violated. And the court said, you know, as long as the executive officers acted in good faith at the time, we hadn't yet told them it was unconstitutional, we're not going to hold them liable. And that's the beginning of the court saying, 
uh, you can violate the Constitution and not be liable as long as it's as long as there's a, a good faith reason. So this is then where I sort of have my misgivings. So if you look at Section 1983, the statute that Congress enacted after the Civil War, it doesn't say anything about good faith defenses. It just says that state actors who violate constitutional rights can be held liable, including for damages. So the first step is the court's idea that there are some sort of common law defenses that existed before that statute and that surely didn't mean to to be overruled, like judicial immunity, like legislative immunity, sort of longstanding principles of the common law. I'm not as sure as the court, in fact, I think the court is quite, was quite wrong to think that a general good faith principle, and especially a general kind of as long as you don't act too unconstitutionally principle, was any sort of background principle before Section 1983 was enacted. It's complicated, there are lots of cases, but I think if you look at the bulk of the cases in this time, they look a lot more like the close to strict liability rule of the naval officer, that uh, if you initiate a unconstitutional action, you're liable for what happens. And even to the extent there were some cases recognizing these kinds of immunities, they were always in common law cases where judges were thought to have more power over the common law and not in constitutional cases until the, until the middle of the 20th century. I argue that sort of that transition from allowing judges to kind of modulate constitutional remedies when Congress has expressly provided one and when the Constitution is supposed to be the supreme law of the land was a, an unlawful misstep. The next major inflection point is in uh, the 1982 case of Harlow versus Fitzgerald, where the Supreme Court turns this defense into what it calls an objective reasonableness defense, that uh, even apart from whether the officer acted in good faith or bad faith, as long as the constitutional violation was not objectively really bad, not a violation of what the court calls clearly established law, then there won't be any liability. And then that's probably the, the most dramatic one. But then over the 35 years since then, the court has continued to kind of tweak and, and ratchet up exactly how clearly established the law needs to be. And indeed, there have been virtually no cases since then, I think two cases since then, where the court has actually said something was a violation of clearly established law. So it's turned it into this standard that doesn't depend on good faith and that is, in fact, very, very, very hard for anybody to meet. Qualified immunity prevails even though its origins are in a mode of constitutional and statutory interpretation known as the legal process school. Legal process was popular in the middle of the 20th century, but especially after the rise of textualism, is now more disfavored. I would certainly acknowledge, as Will has emphasized, that this is a relatively pure policy-based decision extended to Section 1983 cases. And here I will speculate by justices who are still largely in the mode of statutory interpretation that prevailed prior to the advent of modern textualism in which the judges thought that they were entitled, to some extent, to act as junior partners to the legislature, such that if they thought, if the legislature had thought about the question that we're now focused on, surely they would have wanted to include an exception to the statute that they didn't literally write in. One of the things that I started to find the most surprising and maybe even a little disturbing uh, as a law student was we now live in a world where this kind of junior partner Hart and Sachs model is 
if not disfavored, at least certainly controversial among the Supreme Court justices. And there are a lot of justices who purport to reject it and purport to think their job is really much more uh, straightforwardly legalistic and formalist and mostly about the text of the statute and maybe a few you know, longstanding common law rules. And often there are many doctrines that they have kind of turned their nose at or limited or overturned because they don't think they meet those kind of formalist criteria. But the court seems to have uh, an enthusiasm for qualified immunity that's maybe greater than it's ever been, where it hears lots of these cases and, and seems to, to think that if a qualified immunity has been denied, that's a serious legal question that they should enter in on. And that mismatch seems strange to me. Professor Fallon defended qualified immunity as a possibly necessary part of any workable package of rights and remedies. I think it only makes sense to think of rights to sue to enforce the rights and uh, particular remedies such as damages remedies as a package uh, and to think that what courts ought uh, to be doing is to try to give us optimal packages. So people often assume that rights are constants and then rights to sue and immunity doctrines are variables and there is uh, something the matter when the variable of immunity doctrine precludes the availability of a remedy to vindicate a particular substantive constitutional right. And when I say I view these as packages and think we should be concerned with optimal packages, I begin with skepticism that rights are always constants and the rights to sue and immunity doctrines are the only variables. So here's an example I take from John Jeffries. Imagine that it's 1954. The Supreme Court is trying to decide how to rule in Brown against Board of Education. And the court knows this. If it rules for the plaintiffs in Brown, a consequence of that is every child who has ever been sent to a segregated school will be effectively adjudicated to have suffered a constitutional rights violation and will therefore have a right to recover in damages against school boards, school principals, whoever was responsible for making school assignments. Would the Supreme Court have decided Brown the same way that it did? And I think the answer to the question is almost certainly no. Uh, the courts, when recognizing rights, are attentive to social costs. And in a case like Brown, I think we are better off having the expansive interpretation of the right without the remedy of entitlement to recover damages uh, in a situation in which I am quite confident that if there were no immunity doctrines, the right would not have been recognized. I think in modern Fourth Amendment uh, cases, if every time the Supreme Court or a court found a Fourth Amendment violation, there was a damages remedy, we would see narrower interpretations of the Fourth Amendment. If you think about kind of mass constitutional tort cases involving allegations of due process or Eighth Amendment violations in large institutions, overcrowding that violates the Constitution, something of the kind. Courts would be much less willing to recognize rights violations and grant injunctive relief if they knew 
that that holding entailed that everybody who uh, was entitled to benefit from an injunction was also entitled to recover damages. I've called it the equilibration thesis. I think the court is appropriately concerned with getting sensible packages of rights to sue to vindicate rights and remedies, including immunity-based limits on remedies. And sometimes I think qualified immunity can be used. I don't say it's always used, but sometimes I think it can be used in a way to help us get the overall best possible package of rights to sue and remedies uh, for rights violations. Professor Schwartz and Bode raised two objections to this sort of thinking. I think that in a world without qualified immunity, it would remain very difficult to bring and prevail on these claims. There would still be the many barriers to relief that cause cases to be dismissed today on grounds other than qualified immunity. When I looked at federal dockets across the country, many times more cases were dismissed on other grounds at the motion to dismiss and summary judgment stages. And those barriers to relief would continue to exist. The other barriers that are key are judges and juries. Eliminating qualified immunity will not change that fact. There will still be a great thumb on the scale for law enforcement officers in these cases. The evidence that I've seen suggests that there are many other barriers to relief already in these cases. The other issue that I have with this idea is the notion that judges can create some sort of equilibrium here and that by tinkering with one legal doctrine, they address another. That view doesn't take into account the many other factors that play into success in these cases, like juries and jury bias or preference for defendants in these cases. And one thing that I have found, and this is still research that I'm thinking about and and working on, but in parts of the country where qualified immunity is strongest, like the Fifth Circuit, there are other barriers to relief that also seem particularly strong, like jury distaste for plaintiffs in these cases. And so the idea of equilibrium, I think, doesn't take into account the many things outside of judges' own control that influence success and failure in these cases. While Schwartz thinks Fallon's equilibration thesis is wrong on the empirics, Bode focuses on its underlying theory of judging. That's a vision of judging where part of the judge's job is what I guess some would call the law declaration model of kind of thinking about the Supreme Court, especially thinking about the whole package, as you say, of like rights and remedies and the world it's going to create through its rulings. By contrast to maybe a different vision that maybe had more purchased historically, sort of the the version that even involves like the little versus Barim naval officer you mentioned earlier, where the judge's job is more apply a pre-existing right that's sort of not that flexible to the dispute before them and let somebody else worry about the fallout consequences and whether there should be indemnification and something else. And so part of the question is how much should judges just, you know, take the disputes and try to be an umpire and call balls and strikes? And how much should they be kind of responsible stewards of, of the law as a whole? So let me just tick off some examples of 
the way it seems to me the Supreme Court all the time and uncontroversially or mostly uncontroversially takes consequences into account. Uh, Think about New York Times against Sullivan and First Amendment libel doctrine. The Supreme Court says how broad uh, press immunity do we need to have in order to ensure uh, that the press is robust, uninhibited in its criticism, capacity to criticize public officials, and on the basis of that kind of calculation lays down the standard that says the press can't be uh, liable in damages for criticizing public officials unless they spoke falsely or with reckless disregard for the truth. It's a calculation based on what would the consequences be of defining the rule one way or the other. Think about the modern test of strict judicial scrutiny. Is a particular rule or regulation, quote, necessary to a compelling governmental interest? Where did the strict scrutiny test ever come from? It is in one sense uh, made up by the Supreme Court because the notion that there would be rights that were absolutely categorical, absolute, not subject to any exceptions would be unworkable, a non-starter from nearly anybody's point of view. And then once the test is in place, the court has to take calculations of consequences into effect in every particular case. When the court reasons about what's an unreasonable search and seizure, the way that the court reasons, the way courts have always reasoned, is to say, well, what would be the consequences of defining the rule one way or the other? I could go on and on, but I think consequence-based reasoning is just endemic to and unavoidable in constitutional law. When you have a person who presents themselves and says, my rights were violated, I'd like a remedy. And the answer is, well, your rights were violated, but you cannot have a remedy because we hope that denying you a remedy will help us one day give other people rights. Sort of you're being used as a means to a greater societal project without your consent. We all the time say no remedies in damages against judges, no remedies in damages against legislators, no remedies in damages against jurors. Why? Because their policy consequences uh, would be devastating, and we would have a worse situation with respect to the vindication of other people's rights. So in 1954, when the Supreme Court was trying to dismantle Jim Crow, I see how qualified immunity is a key tool to doing that, that they have a lot of law they want to change and a lot of new rights they're going to recognize, and they're not going to be able to do that without a doctrine of qualified immunity. But it seems like we don't live in that world anymore with respect to the Supreme Court and maybe won't for a very long time. So now I wonder if qualified immunity still serves that purpose or whether it's largely serving a more nefarious one. So now there are two ways to take this. One is we've come to the end of history, uh, and I'm deeply skeptical that history has come to an end. Another way to take this is almost sort of ironic I think in the context of the conversations that's unfolded so far, in that your prior position, if I understood it correctly, was, well, courts should just lay down what they take to be the clear rule dictated by law or history or tradition or something else and let the consequences fall where they may. Uh, And now the suggestion seems 
to be. Uh, well, the consequences wouldn't be so bad now. They would have been bad then. And so for consequential reasons, maybe it was a good idea then, but a bad idea now. The third thing I would try to squeeze in just very quickly is on the consequences front. No, in the short term, we're probably not uh, in the situation that the country was in with the Warren Court in 1954 and Brown uh, against Board of Education. But I do think about these institutional suits where somebody wants to say the conditions of confinement are unconstitutional. And in those cases, I do think that the availability of a damages remedy against officials would exert a kind of chilling effect on courts trying to decide whether to recognize those rights. And I also think, if you just want to think generally about Fourth Amendment rights, there are searches and seizures the court would be likely, not just the Supreme Court, but courts generally uh, would be likely to understand the rights that we have more narrowly in order to avoid imposition of what many of them would take to be unfair and possibly too socially costly impositions of liability. To ask whether qualified immunity is unlawful is actually to ask, in part, what is law and what is the judge's role? And if we think that judges have a a creative junior partner role in crafting rights and remedies, then I think we can make a serious case for qualified immunity, although one that's contingent and empirical and hard. And if their role is to apply, you know, statutes and longstanding historical principles that existed before those statutes were passed, then I think it's much harder to justify This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. We'd like to extend special thanks to Richard Fallon, William Bode, and Joanna Schwartz for appearing on our podcast, and David Sandifer for producing. Follow us on Twitter at UshiLRev. Articles from the Law Review are available on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud.com slash UshiLRev. The Law Review is happy to announce a new blog, lawreviewblog.uchicago.edu. Thank you so much for listening.